You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 23rd of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, Brexit, but we'll try to keep it quick. My guests Carlotta Rabello, Chiara Ramella and Augustin Machalari will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including one government's plans to pay people to leave its capital, Black Friday, Cyber Monday and the possibility that retailers may be beginning to hate them. And... Whale song, not just the soundtrack of choice of scented candle shops, apparently. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Augustin Machalari, Chiara Ramella and Carlotta Rabello. Welcome all. We are going to start tonight by talking about Brexit, as we are all going to be until the sun dies. However, this past week has been annoying and absurd, even by the formidable standards already established by the process. UK Prime Minister Theresa May has presented, for what feels like the billionth time, a withdrawal agreement which everybody hates and which probably won't work anyway. In a development which could only have been foreseen by anybody who knew anything, Spain has started getting stroppy about Gibraltar and EU leaders are due to meet on Sunday to sign off on the deal before the UK resumes arguing about it. Um, Carlotta, first of all, this is a, a pet theory of my own, a rewriting of history. Two and a half or whenever it was years ago, God, it feels like 300 years ago, but should, years ago. should the Remain campaign have made more of a thing of how incredibly boring Brexit was going to be? I mean, yes, maybe that would have saved us all from... Cause if they just are, put up billboards saying, honestly, you have no idea. Like, honestly, dealing with Nigel Farage forever banging on about how we should leave the EU is better than this. Because we keep uh, thinking about, you know, oh, this is all going to end uh, when the UK finally leaves. No, uh, nope, it's, no. it's not. It's not. It's just always going to be here. And I'm already so tired of it and it hasn't even happened. <sighs> um, so we, we've got to talk about this for at least another six or seven minutes. Keep keep the energy up, people. Um, Augustine, Theresa May's deal, is it realistically, for all that everybody hates it and nobody likes it, is it actually as good as it's going to get? <laughs> Maybe. If, 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 if only our listeners could have seen that fabulous theatrical shrug. I, yeah, sorry, I thought we had the webcam on. No, um, I mean, come on, as good as it's going to get is surely a second referendum, isn't it? Well, if if that happens, and I mean, on that subject, we will talk about this. Do you, Augustine, feel like something is starting to shift in that direction? Certainly, we are being led to believe that the wind is changing. There was a statistic out somewhere that said that 46% of polled people would back a second, would back remain in a second referendum against 42 for leave. Whether or not you can take, first of all, that kind of indication that people have maybe changed their minds uh, literally is is a question that I imagine pollsters have been uh, tearing their hair out over. I also am slightly mistrustful of the outlets that are kind of feeding us this, oh, maybe there'll be a second referendum kind of uh, treat. In fairness, we've been doing that. Apart from us. <laughs> no. We've been we've been saying that it would be good to have one, and I agree with that. I think that there's 
um, appetite for it amongst sections of society who happen to be the same sections of society that said Brexit would never happen. This the is kind true. Of the so-called, you know, bubble, uh, liberal bubble of of London and the and the greater cities, and whether in rural areas the appetite has changed that much, how attached people are to this idea that it was democratically decided upon and that. To re-vote would be a subversion of democracy all of these different things flying around you know last week we thought maybe Theresa May was going to resign I think for maybe the seventh time this year only if you only counted <laughs> seven <laughs> the point being that 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 there's lots of change on the cards and none of it seems to come through but I wouldn't want to make a firm I wouldn't want to commit on, to on that subject, Chiara, does it at least occur to you reviewing the events of... Is it, I forget which week we're talking about at this point. I think it was this week. But does it look like that Theresa May might actually have successfully stared down the headbangers? I think so. I think, well, obviously, there are people... She's had to convince, once again, during the phone-in that she was not going to step down should this... Um, this political agreement See, be I'm, rejected. I'm actually starting to feel like she will literally be Prime Minister for the rest of my life. <laughs> Possibly. Well, at this stage, she's weathered so much horrendous... I, I did vaguely wonder if you were about to say she's going to duet with Eminem. <laughs> that we, might, it that might make, help. Which wouldn't make any less sense than most of well, what has happened Well, that song is year. quite troublesome, so I wouldn't suggest going <laughs> down that route. <laughs> no, but what I, another thing that I loved from that phone-in that she did earlier on um, it was when she was pressured to, um, I guess, respond to the comments that Rab had made earlier on, which were that... This is the former Brexit secretary. Well, who obviously now has all the freedom to say all these things because he's no longer affiliated with any of this project. But uh, he's saying with the deal that she's currently um, discussing, we would be worse off than being in the EU. She's being pressurised to kind of respond to this to this idea. And she basically couldn't really spell out that we would be better off. She said it would be different. Now, that's the kind of stuff that my father would tell me if I came out from the changing room of a shop wearing a very garish dress and being like, do you think this suits me? And I'd be like, it's different. <laughs> <laughs> um, Carlotta, uh, you are the person at this table who comes from closest to Gibraltar. So <laughs> you're, you're going to have to wear that one. Um, uh, Spain has kind of prodded at this a bit over the last, well, last few centuries, but especially over the last couple of years. Uh, my question to you is, should we strike now while they least, least suspect it? I don't think this is a time that they least expect it, to be <laughs> fair. Uh, I, I mean, I, this whole Gibraltar thing, it just, it, it's, it's as you said, anyone that had been paying attention even for half a second could see this one coming. The problem here is that, you know, during the campaign, the issue of Gibraltar was one of the many used by the Remain campaign of why this decision shouldn't be made. And um, the problem is that the uh, Theresa May's government took so long to get to this point. The, this, uh, uh, the draft withdrawal agreement should have been reached uh, at least in January. I remember at the beginning of the year, the EU saying we're running out of time to get that draft agreement because all of these questions would follow so that you would have time to negotiate it. Now, I'm not saying that the government, I can't believe I'm saying these words, I'm not saying 
the government was incompetent. Controversial. Um, because there's a strategy behind it. Now, I don't know if I'm giving them too much credit to say it was a strategy, because by leaving it last minute, then there's less, there's not enough room for MPs to challenge the agreement and for us to go back and forward between that. You're giving the strategy away. <laughs> but the truth is that by leaving it to this point, all these issues such as Gibraltar and the fisheries uh, policy and everything, you don't have time to be to, to discuss that. So you either walk off the, down the cliff and see what happens or you just go with the bad agreement that you have on the table. Well, I, I think there's an outside chance that we may have further opportunity to discuss Brexit. Uh, so let's move along now and look at Tokyo to state only the most obvious facts about it. It is a big city with a great many people living in it, about 38 million in the wider metropolitan area. Japan's government has started to wonder if maybe Tokyo has too many people living in it and is contemplating drastic action to reduce the numbers. A one-off payment of perhaps 3 million million yen, or about £21,000, to move elsewhere. The logic is obvious, to reduce the crowding of one city and to stimulate growth in others and decentralise the economy generally. I, I have to say, as, as an Australian, this, this, this story is hilarious because the idea... Just trying to think of a number you would need to pay people to leave our national capital of Canberra. Um, I, I come up with a figure of between $15 and $20. Um, I, I, before anybody writes in, I lived there long enough to be entitled to make those jokes. Um, Augustine, first of all, do we basically like this idea? I like the idea. Yeah. I mean, personally, I'd like it very much if I was offered a sort of substantial sum to move out into the countryside and set up a little farmstead there. That's, that, uh, that's your dream anyway. So yeah. somebody's also giving you £27,000 to go with it. Well, indeed. <laughs> should, we, should we set up a GoFundMe page for you while we're, while we're on air? Who's saying that there's not one already? <laughs> it's on my Twitter, guys. At I am org. Follow me. Um, no, the, uh, um, I, I, I think it's a good idea. You were just saying that the that the city has something like 30 million inhabitants. 38 million people. Which is between a third and a quarter of the population of Japan, as I understand it. it. Staggering it's, numbers. It's one and a half times the population of Australia. It's extraordinary. It's really bonkers. Um, the, the emptying out of rural areas is obviously tied to this kind of demographic time bomb that has been much discussed when, when, when talking about Japan. Um, it has been observed that maybe the money would be better spent on uh, boosting the regions uh, that people are being bribed to move to instead of bribing people to move there and actually make them attractive propositions for potential uh, urbanites looking to escape the smoke. Uh, Kiara, how, how much money would, and I'm not saying I'm about to organise a whip round, but how much money would you want to leave London? I've been thinking about Italy and in the Italian um, countryside, and I know that there are similar um, initiatives that have been uh, put in, in place by the Italian government, uh, notably with different budgets, because we are talking about Italy. <laughs> so I've read uh, an article from 2017 saying that people were giving 2,000 euros uh, to go live in a small 394 inhabitant um, uh, town in, in Italy. I... Um, I, I think that there's another that there's another initiative that proposed to sell properties in small Italian towns for one euro and then to put the the cost of reworking uh, the whole property on the person who did buy this it. This has been done with some housing. I think in Liverpool in the United mm. Kingdom, terrace houses were sold for one pound on the on the understanding that the person undertook to do them up and then live in them for a certain period. Yes, uh, I, although. 
I, I find it difficult and to tie in with whether we should stimulate the economy as a whole or whether we should just pay somebody to go there and then create economy whilst they're already there. Um, I think hospitality has a huge role to play in this because once you start having, for example, a great hotel or a great something to visit for these towns, then at least you create at least some visitors going there for, to begin with and then a whole network of people who work around that hotel or that institution, that restaurant, that whatever it is that people travel to. Just to jump in on that point about uh, houses for a euro or a pound, in Japan, they're literally giving them away. Um, they uh, an associated issue. So the demographic time bomb is this aging population in Japan, falling birth rates, which is depopulating the rural areas because young people are moving to the cities for work, blah, 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 leaving lots of houses empty. These houses are just decaying. And so they're, they're, they're being given away on websites People aren't that keen to take them on, in part, quite considerable part, because of superstitions surrounding abandoned homes. People are worried about living in a house that has been uh, somewhere that someone has died a lonely death in, for example. So the associated kind of stigmas of um, sadder old age are kind of bleeding out and, and, and infecting these houses so that they're giving them away. Carlotta, do you think there would be... Because the problem I foresee here, which I, I'm going to invite you to solve, uh, is, is selling it to the people who already live in these rural areas who can be, as it is, somewhat resentful of folk from the city moving into their bucolic idol with their fancy urban ways. The idea that they may have actually been paid to do it, you can imagine inflaming a certain amount of resentment from people who already choose to live in these places. Well, I think... Uh, uh, I, I can imagine that, but um, it's. I think it's a bit different to pay someone um, an amount to move out of a city and then you decide where to go as long as it's not within that city and the other is hey come to this town this is how much we'd give you I think it's, sure diff enough. it's different approaches um, I remember in Portugal it's not a case of um, people moving out of Lisbon or Porto it's really a these smaller towns and villages that are really completely becoming abandoned even in favour of other bigger cities um, and I remember a couple of years an initiative uh, if we were talking about smaller budget, uh, budgets I think this is going down like the 2,000 euros from Italy seems like whew, a <laughs> chest in comparison to what Portuguese government was offering uh, which was if you settled in one of these villages that was part of this programme and had a child there for and raised your child there effectively. For every children that was born until they were 18, the government would pay you, I think it was like 200 euros uh, for every year. You you laugh, but like, it's Portugal, man. Like, that's a lot of money. <laughs> it's like, um, um, and, uh, and I know that at the time, there were a couple of reports of a few couples that took up that initiative, but it didn't prove to be too successful. And it is a problem now that we're seeing mostly foreigners, um, retired uh, pensioners, or even someone that at the age of 40 or 50 decided to change career, use their life savings, bought a farm in Portugal. So while that sort of resentment might have been expected, it's actually been seen the other way around. It's like, well, this village was dying out, there's literally three people living here, and now because someone decided to open a nice farm or some agro-tourismo place, now we have people coming over still respecting the place. And I think when done carefully and um, in a thoughtful way, it actually can bring a lot of positive things to the community involved. I was going to say about Italian villages as well. Many of, I think, what have been observed to be the most successful integration programs 
programs for migrants who've come into the country often come from these villages. The influx of young people coming from sub-Saharan regions has actually had a huge positive impact also on the communities who finally have younger people to integrate the community with. Um, and often those schemes that don't necessarily work very well in bigger cities can really fruitfully work in smaller contexts. Even um, even in with the latest um, the refugee crisis and the uh, infamous migrant quotas that each EU nation had to um, ha- had assigned to them, uh, to Portugal, uh, whereas of course the few were dispersed between the, t- the bigger cities, um, uh, there was a big emphasis in distributing refugees through smaller villages and towns that actually the skills that these people had like would actually be uh, practical and they would find a place to work rather than, uh, as you say, the grand scheme of a big city where perhaps finding a job wouldn't be as easy. Uh, if you are in a place where the produce comes from your backyard and you just moved, you don't have any money, that's easier to uh, settle up. And the community that is not used to having anyone new for generations is... Uh, actively involved into making you part of it and wanting to help you with your language, with dealing with your taxes, because if you feel like you belong, everyone is safer. And I think it has worked out very well in that regard in Portugal as well. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Chiara Ramella, Carlotta Ribello and Augustin Machilari. Coming up next, why Black Friday might be sending retailers into the red champagne script writing. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. You're back with Midori House, with me, Andrew Mullister, with me, are Carlotta Ribello, Chiara Ramella, and Augustin Machelari. Now, today is Black Friday, a relatively recent addition to a time of year which was not previously notably lacking for inane popular contrivances geared towards encouraging people to spend money on unnecessary garbage. And yes, it's 32 days until Christmas. Black Friday is an American import, usually celebrated here in the United Kingdom with the traditional fight over a television set in a shopping centre car park. It is not necessarily, however, the boon to retailers that might be expected. Shops are apparently becoming increasingly vexed that everyone is stocking up for the festive season on this one day. Um, First of all, did anybody either snap up a bargain or get into an undignified brawl? Um, Not today. (laughs) (laughs) Not today, when? (laughs) I had a fight on my cycle in, but that was unrelated. Yeah, I I bought a pint of milk, but it was not... not 30% off. It was not noticeably... Well, hopefully none of it is. Hey, uh, no, it was was not noticeably discounted. Do you know what really strikes me as curious about this whole Black Friday thing? If you're going to be encouraging people to spend money, and I guess in a way you should encourage them to think of it as a fairly joyous activity... 
Black Friday is not exactly the most enticing, you know, name to to, to inspire this idea of joyfulness. And I, I, I will confess that my research into the nomenclature was not extensive. I, I don't actually know why it's called that. Does anybody? I have, yes. Ah, um, thank um, you. So some people said that it was because the pedestrian and vehicle use um, just after ta- Thanksgiving got so intense and it sparked some violence back then that that's why it started being called like that. Because it's, it's actually began... As a, as a negative connotation, because it was uh, it was just a a, a day of of, te- of violence, <laughs> and then it kind of evolved into this right now. It looks like. I think there are three things that are a shame about Black Friday. Just three, but okay. Three major ones. <coughs> the first is that you know you joke that the uh, UK tradition is to fight over a TV in the car park of a mm-hmm. super super mall. Uh, in fact, the real UK tradition is to queue up outside shops from three in the morning on Boxing Day to take advantage of the sales. That is true. And I, I don't know that there is an annual spectacle every year that baffles me more than that. My mum's favourite item on the local news is footage of the queues of people queuing up <laughs> <laughs> at six in the morning to get their discount goods. Um, the second thing that is a shame is that in spite of the existence of Cyber Monday, this year uh, in the UK, bricks and mortar retail hasn't been zinging. Uh, people have still been making the majority of their purchases online when they're meant to do that on Monday, Cyber Monday. I know. There's a clue in the name. The clue's in the name. The third thing, which is a shame, is that, I mean, obviously, it just it's the, an orgy of consumption that makes me feel physically sick. Well, succinctly, <laughs> succinctly put. Um, Car- Carlotta, do you think it's possible that retailers might actually get sick of it? Because there is, there is research underpinning quite a lot of what Augustine just said, that everybody is just splurging everything on one day, or possibly on Monday as well, uh, with, with the result that for the entire rest of the festive season, um, retail staff are finding themselves with not all that much to do. Well, and there's also the fact of uh, the, the day, either Black Friday, yeah, I guess... Yeah, the day that you actually go to the shops being Black Friday for the staff working there must be like the worst day to be working. Like when you watch that footage of literally the security barriers are coming up and people are already crawling under them. Because there's enough days like that that are bad enough. I, I have worked in retail on Christmas Eve. And it was in a record shop because that's how old I am. Um, and it was just, and, and this was a suburban record shop in Sydney. And it was, it was bizarre. I mean, no one ever actually came to blows, but it was a, a near run thing. And then you would get people banging on the door just after you'd closed in tears, like saying, I, I need to make my Christmas shopping. And you're like, mate, it's six o'clock on Christmas Eve. It's, it's been in all the papers. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't be surprised. That's, that's kind of different though, isn't it? Cause that's like, um, you know that that's genuine desperation by the negligent who are like it's, 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 it's genuine disorganization this is, is what more it like is. Impo- I've, I've no sympathy this is like imposed on you you meant to feel desperate you meant to want all yeah. these things this is true and it's often, a frenzy and often like if you go if you're watching an item you go a week maybe before Black Friday to the website it will say I don't know 60, 60 pounds and then Black Friday will be like 60 pounds and then above it like 200 and across it it's like come on it's always been 60 pounds you just make or like 59 Point nine nine, and what a bargain! I just, I just don't understand um, how we got to this point, and uh, I don't believe it's good for anyone, for consumers, for retailers. It, it, it just isn't. And I, I don't know if you saw today. I think it was 
Marks and Spencer, one of the few uh, big um, household like name, brands here in the UK that decided not to participate in Black Friday, and they don't. They have just the usual promotions, but they don't have anything labeled as such. And I mean, it's quite a sane move. Well, I think that going back to the idea of, of Og as well, that Og was, was uh, mentioning that um, this has not been necessarily very good for bricks and mortar retail. I think that's not surprising uh, because I think the way that people are shopping nowadays has changed. And if you are willing to go to a bricks and mortar shop, you want from that experience something very different from what you wanted from that experience five, ten years ago. If you go, you want for it to be quiet, you want for it to be beautiful and you want to be attended to and you want to be shown and for it to be the word that you will see repeated everywhere is an experience but it is like that and something like this it's not a very positive experience which is why you probably would not want to go and go online instead well finally tonight boffins from the university of st andrews and the university of queensland claim to have discovered that humpback whales change their song every few years or so we do of course have to take their word for it it may be that they felt after looking into the matter for 13 years that they had to come up with something it says here anyway that male humpbacks change their song every few years replacing previous signature anthems with something generally simpler but before we discuss the ramifications of this here is some whale so that's that's just a racket it's worse than jazz it's like uh, some of the ambient music i choose to listen to on my days off Okay, um, it takes all sorts. Uh, the, the the interesting thing about this uh, is is this idea that that they undergo what the study calls a cultural revolution, and not necessarily the happiest choice of phrase if you have any understanding of Chinese history. But anyway, um, and 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 basically replace the songs in their head with something else entirely. Now, what I wanted to talk about was whether any of you here gathered would welcome such a talent yourselves. Kiara, do, do you have anything that you just wish you could stop whistling to yourself? Uh, see, I went a little bit above and beyond in this exercise, and I actually found <laughs> <laughs> and I actually found a page that I used to have on the internet, which used to automatically record um, every single song that I used to listen to. So it was a scrobbling website, Last FM Profile. And so I went back there. How, how do we find it? Please well, tell us. I will not disclose these details. But my last listen can, logged the on there can hear me is, back, <laughs> is back from 2013. And my top listen songs were by Death Cab for Cutie, uh, Philip Glass, The Killers, Placebo, MGMT. And I've got to say, and this is with shame, I, I listened to that MGMT song this afternoon before coming on this show. I referenced Placebo yesterday. I listened to that same The Cap of Beauty song possibly three days ago. Luckily, I don't listen to The Killers anymore. <laughs> but I <laughs> think I'm in need of a cultural revolution. <laughs> so, Have you considered whale song? <laughs> perhaps. That's a new barrier. I think my romantic and cultural education is stuck in 2006. <laughs> Well, I feel I feel like I share a bit of the same uh, age. Um, I think it's because we're the similar age and generation uh, that of what Kiara is saying. Uh, on this exercise, I decided as well to go back to one of my old social media profiles. Not even going to go there. Which one doesn't matter. Uh, but it was one that, again typing furiously <laughs> over here. It was one that like enabled you to when you open the profile, it could start playing your song and. <laughs> 
I felt so horrified by the choice. I was still there that I immediately. Which was? I'm not gonna. Oh, come I'm on. not come gonna on. share. Come on. Oh no, you have to. You've got. You've got ten seconds. It's by the cardigans. That's a, a love <laughs> no, That's a good record. Oh. Uh, this is where it all that's comes down. It's all, where it all comes okay, down. Okay, th- this argument, unfortunately, <laughs> is going to have to persist past the Just closing st- credits. Just say that I emailed said company to us to shut down my profile. And that's what I did right before this show. The, the closing credits will, of course, be read over the tune that I know I find myself humming in my sleep, i.e. the theme to this show. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Augustin Machilari, Carlotta Ribello and Chiara Ramello, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Gabriel Delasanti. Our studio manager was George McDonough. Music next at 1900. It's the menu with Marcus Hippie. I'm back at 2200 with more on the day's main stories on the daily. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. And Loveful is a good record. It is. Mm-hmm.